Welcome to Amped Up with Proud Resistor. This is progressive activist Ryan Knight. And I'm Chris Lavoie, the Stephanie Miller Show. And our guest today is Brandon Wolf. Brandon is a national gun violence prevention advocate. Brandon, welcome to Amped Up. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, look, we're three days into the new year, and Trump is already trying to start a war with uh, Iran mm. <laughs> to distract uh, you know, from his upcoming Senate trial and his corrupt presidency. And I want to get your take on that, but, but before, um, and I'm really excited to have you on the show today, um, because you're one of the survivors of the Pulse nightclub shooting, where mm-hmm. for, 49 of our LGBTQ brothers, sisters, and allies, including two of your friends, were murdered in one of the worst hate crimes and mass shootings in our nation's history. Yet you persisted and have channeled what I imagine is the worst day of your life into bold action to end gun violence in America. Just last year, you became the first Pulse nightclub survivor to testify before Congress to demand them to take action and use every tool in their toolbox to end the gun violence epidemic in America, including to reinstitute the assault weapons ban. First, I just want to thank you for your courage. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And yeah. sec- well, it's and, my honor to be able to speak out. Yeah. And second, do you want to share share with us a little bit about your journey from that tragic night at Pulse to that triumphant day of testifying before Congress? Yeah. You know, um, if I had to look back in the mirror at, you know, life before June 12th of 2016, I, I was pretty comfortable. Mm. Um, you know, I knew a world where where President Obama was was president, and uh, you know we had leaders running up and down the halls of the White House waving rainbow flags. Right. It really felt like you <laughs> right. know my community had arrived, right? Right. And politics kind of felt far away for me, to be honest. Mm. Um, I had job security for the first time. I had a car payment for the first time. I don't know if I loved that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody loves it, it really that. it really was yeah it really was like you know this is what adulthood feels like this yeah. is you know you you arrive in a place and uh you surround yourself with people that you love and you ride that into retirement and and june 12th the, the shooting at pulse changed all of that mm. um politics was thrust into my face all of a sudden victims of gun violence weren't just a cnn ticker anymore they were my friends they mm. were my neighbors they were my family um and i felt a sense of obligation you know i, I remember the day that things shifted for me um, I didn't watch the news after I learned that my best friends, Drew and Juan, had been murdered um, for a significant amount of time. And when I did, I stumbled across Fox News, which is always a bad decision. But um, there were all these talking heads talking about Pulse, but they weren't talking about people like me. They weren't talking about LGBTQ people of color. They weren't talking about the lines of gay men wrapped around buildings trying to donate blood who were not legally allowed to. They weren't talking about how the tragedy was impacting the undocumented community. They were talking about Donald Trump and Mm. his grotesque tweets and patting himself on the back that he had predicted a tragedy like that. Mm. And I had this realization at that moment that to be comfortable and complacent wasn't good enough anymore. Mm. And that if I didn't speak out, if I didn't use my voice, that Drew and Juan would lose theirs forever. Mm. Uh, And so I made a decision at that moment that no matter how tough things got, no matter how ugly people were toward me, I had an obligation to fight for a world that the two of them would have been proud to live in. Uh, and so that's really what I've dedicated my life to the last three and a half years. I've had some incredible opportunities. Um, I've spent a lot of time with young activists, especially the March for Our Lives students. Uh, and so it's, it's been an incredible learning journey. There have been some ups, there have been some failures, um, but you're right. I think the moment testifying before Congress was truly a triumphant one, Mm. especially because reading into the record my best friend's names and Mm. sharing what they meant to me, sharing the impact of that moment on our community, uh, I I think is is invaluable, right? Right. Um, That will forever be a part of American history. Yeah. You know, the gun violence epidemic in our country, it, it didn't just start, you know, in this decade. This has been going on since Columbine. Um, and one of the things that I think has has prevented us from doing something about it and taking action is that, you know, we have one of these tragedies and you see the, all the pictures on the news and, and, and our country becomes obsessed with it for a few days. But then there's almost this this thought in people that like, OK, well, that's really tragic, but that's never going to happen to me. Right. And that's that lie people tell themselves that they disconnect themselves from the great pain. That, this, yeah. that these mass shootings have caused in our country and that the gun violence epidemic continues to cause. And you're a testament to like, 
right? This isn't a lie that this can happen to me because it did happen to you. Do you want to speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's where you started to see the tide shift, to be honest, in the last three to four years. When you see, you know, these schools trending on social media and you've got students in front of CNN cameras, one of the questions they're always asked first is, is it hard to believe that it's happening to you? And the answer increasingly has become no. Right. This is what I expected to happen, right? They, we've got young people growing up um, knowing nothing other than hiding under their desks, doing active shooter drills. Um, so we have really reached the apex in this country where people now assume that gun violence is going to become a part of the fabric of their community. At some point, their town, their school, their movie theater will be trending on Twitter and it will be because someone with easy access to a firearm uh, opened fire and killed their friends, families, and neighbors. So I think that we have had an awakening. I think we've had a realization, but I do still think it's difficult in this age where everything is so chaotic, everything is so dire. Um, We're in an existential crisis at all times. It's difficult for people to be able to digest it all. You know, I was one of those people who really struggled to be able to turn on CNN and and watch it for a long period of time because it feels like the world is falling apart at all times. Um, But these issues are real. Gun violence is real. A hundred Americans lose their lives every single day at the hands of a gun. And that's why we have to stay vigilant. We have to stay paying attention. Uh, It was a huge part of the 2018 midterm campaigns. It's been a huge part of what's driving people in 2020. Uh, This is a conversation that's not going away and it's one that we need to have. Yes, absolutely. Now, what do you, what do you attribute to just the inaction from Congress on gun reform? Because the right seems to unapologetically use guns and the NRA to rally their base, right? Have, have Democrats done enough to counter this with a bold message that we need to end the gun violence epidemic in America and stop the easy access to assault weapons? Yeah, well, what I think the right has done very successfully, and, and specifically the gun lobby, gun manufacturers, the NRA, have done very successfully over the last several decades is boil the messaging down to really incendiary tweet-sized bites, Mm. right? That if you believe that there should be any regulation on firearms, you want to take away my guns. Right. If you believe that someone should not have access to a weapon of war that has a violent criminal past, then you are anti-Second Amendment, right? And they've done it very effectively. The gun lobby and gun manufacturers have pumped tens of millions of dollars into the system to get this message rolling and to infiltrate every corner of the country. And on top of that, they've spent tens of millions of dollars, $30 million on Donald Trump alone, tens of millions of dollars to ensure that Republicans are so terrified of taking anything other than an extreme right-wing stance on guns because they will be primaried in their next election. So it's not really about, you know, we're going to we're going to spend money to try and turn the public against you in general. They're threatening to primary these people from the right. And so because they are so terrified that they're going to lose their jobs, they stand in lockstep with the gun lobby, gun manufacturers and the NRA. Right. I think that we as progressives and Democrats maybe struggled for some time to come up with our own messaging. But I think we've done a really nice job and have to continue to lean in in the last three or four years. And a lot of that has been driven by young activists, right, who have pushed leaders to take a harder stance to say, this has to stop. Enough is enough. We're talking about sweeping gun safety legislation as a part of presidential platforms that was unthinkable, even in 2016. To think that all of the Democrats running um, as far as I know, support an assault weapons ban yes. would have been unthinkable in you know 2012 or 2016. But that's where we are today, in large part thanks to activists, thanks to grassroots movement. We have to continue to do that. Yeah, agreed. Well said. You know, another thing just to tie in the you know the gun violence epidemic uh, with Trump, you know, trying to start this war with Iran. Uh, mm-hmm. What really disturbed me is that shortly after launching the attack on on, on Iran. Trump tweeted a picture of the American flag as if starting a war makes him patriotic, right? right? And that's what we need to stop. We need to stop conflating patriotism with war and guns. You know, being a patriot means loving our country. It does not mean loving our country being in endless wars and having endless gun violence in America, 
right? You know, Bush was not a patriot for starting the Iraq war. And Trump is not a patriot for trying to start a war with Iran. Uh, you know, right. that's and, and we see the same thing with guns in our country yeah. where so many right wing gun nuts conflate owning a gun with being a patriot. And it perpetuates a society of violence. Uh, I think Democrats need to take back the word patriotism and redefine it. What does patriotism mean to you, Brandon? Well, first of all, just the absurdity of a grainy JPEG of <laughs> the U.S. flag. Right? Could he have no gotten context. a better JPEG of it? <laughs> I mean, seriously, like we don't have we don't have any high res photos in right. the White House. I, I'm very yeah, I think the White House might have a high res photo of an American flag or two. Yeah. I would hope so, yeah. but it seems like you know we're trying to do a throwback here, or we're running low budget. I'm not sure. Um, so the absurdity, the, the absurdity of that alone, right, with no statement, we still don't know what the strategy is. Right. Uh, it's been very piecemeal. We've got 3,500 troops going to the Middle East. We have no idea what their objective is right now. So I, I, all of it is very absurd. But I think you really bring up a good point, right? And that is that we have falsely conflated patriotism and yes. love of country with violence. Yes. And we have to unmarry those two things. Yes. And that goes to the heart of what I meant around messaging, right? Mm -hmm. And the gun manufacturers, the gun lobby, the American industrial complex has baked in this message that in order to be a patriot, in order to show your love for the United States, you have to inherently love violence. Mm. Uh, and have, you know, violence be tied into what masculinity means, what what patriotism means. And as Democrats, as progressives, we can unmarry those things, right? The things that we love about the United States, the things that are great about the United States are so much more vast than violence. They're so much more vast than spending trillions of dollars on a war in the Middle East that kills thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, right? That for me, is not patriotism. Patriotism is being proud of our diversity. Patriotism is, you know, loving the American dream and the opportunity to achieve success for your family and your friends and the next generation. Uh, patriotism for me means being proud of our history of innovation on, you know, leading the on leading the globe in in things like um, manufacturing and and technological revolution, those are things that make me a patriot. Mm. I'm proud to be an American because of the great things that we are able to accomplish when we put our heads together and we dream big, um, fighting endless wars in the Middle East and getting thousands of people killed in the process is not what makes me a patriot. Yeah, well said. I mean, I would just add that, you know, for me, patriotism is not living in a country where children are in cages. You know, mm -hmm. patriotism is a, a nation that where healthcare is a human right, you know, patriotism yep. is workers earning a living wage. Uh, mm -hmm. Patriotism is uh, where the is living in a country where the racial uh, racial wealth gap is a thing of the past, uh, right. and where the rich pay their fair share. You know, that's what patriotism right. looks like to me. And so I just think is is we have these discussions. I think it's so important, like you said, it's it's about messaging in our party and also about taking back the American flag and patriotism from a party that is betraying our constitution and selling out our nation to engage in these endless wars and to, and to boost wall street and to, and to lift up the rich in our country. That's right. I, well, I think, you know, you, you make a really good point there at the end. Um, what was grotesque to me and, and really appalling and unacceptable was looking at the futures from some of these companies like Raytheon yep. uh, and Lockheed Martin in yep. the moments after it appeared that we may be going to war with Iran. They made millions of dollars. Yep, I shared moments. I shared the graphic this morning on Twitter. It absolutely, I saw it. My friend Pedro, who's an economist, tweeted it out, and it made me absolutely sick. They are already it's, making money off this war in Iran, and it, and it just it's, started. It's truly vile. We have 3,500 troops that were just deployed today yep. to go into the Middle East. We don't know what the strategy is. We don't know what their objective is, but what we do know is that people sitting at the top of these companies like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin made millions of dollars at the same time. Mm. So we can't talk about being patriots while we're sending young American lives into the line of battle, potentially risking, you know, the, the, losing their lives 
in the Middle East for a war where we don't have a strategy yet. We don't even know what's going on at the same time that CEOs and executives from these companies are raking in millions of dollars in profit. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, you know, kind of circling back to our, our discussion on gun violence, uh, you know, one of the things that has, has, has really disturbed me is, you know, since Trump has become president, we've seen a dramatic increase in hate crimes and mass shootings and, and white supremacist terrorism, you know, and it's so clear as day that his white nationalist rhetoric is emboldening these hate crimes. Why has the mainstream media been so reluctant to connect the dots between Trump's hateful rhetoric and the rise in hate crimes in America? You know, it's interesting. The mainstream media is struggling to understand Donald Trump. They're struggling mm -hmm. to understand how to cover him and his allies effectively. Mm -hmm. I also think the mainstream media makes a lot of money from Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump drives up ratings. If you watch CNN, I, I watched a, um, a clip of CNN with Larry King, and he was talking to Tina Turner. I can't remember when it was, but it was fascinating to me to compare and contrast that really long segment with Tina Turner talking about spiritual well-being and her journey as a musician to what we watch on CNN every night mm. right now, mm. which is a running dialogue about Donald Trump. Everything is a meme or right. a headshot of Donald Trump. It is quite literally Donald Trump 24-7. Right. And so I think at the same time that they're making a ton of money off of this reality TV show presidency, they also can't fully understand how to cover him without giving the messages he's spouting some level of, um, you know, viability, right? So yep. you can't talk about being fair in media coverage at the same time that you're giving lies the same amount of coverage as the truth. And so I think the mainstream media, when it comes to his hateful rhetoric, hasn't yet figured out how to turn it off, mm. right? The way that we stop this kind of uh, vile incendiary messaging from spreading is to turn it off. But the mainstream media hasn't been willing to do that because they're hiding behind this guise of we have to be fair, we have to you know, play both sides, we have to be impartial in our coverage. Um, we have to enter into an, area, an era, I think in 2020, where the mainstream media takes a harder line stance on, you know, we are not going to give lies the coverage that they don't deserve. Right. We are not going to allow hate speech to be wall to wall coverage 24 seven, um, especially when it's not true. So I, I think, you know, the, the mainstream media has to figure out how do you cover Donald Trump without giving his lies credence? How do you cover Donald Trump without elevating and exacerbating his hateful rhetoric? Um, and how do you stop hiding behind this? We're trying to be impartial uh, when in reality you're just running ads for him. 24-7. Yeah, well said. You know, one of the things that, that drives me crazy is it's almost like they're profiting off of his corruption rather than sh shining a light on his corruption. And mm -hmm. we saw this also, though, during his campaign, right? He ran a campaign that was rooted in racism and white nationalist rhetoric and white nationalist immigration policies. Yet mm -hmm. the mainstream media did not call, you never heard them call Donald Trump far right, right? Or, right? or a far right Republican as he is. Yet now we have someone like Elizabeth Warren running for president and she's running on economic policies that lift up working people and she's running on fighting for universal health care. Yet the media, including CNN and some of the pundits on MSNBC and even in the New York Times, they label her far left. So right there, you see where the media bias truly is, right? Trump can get away with putting kids in cages and his racist rhetoric and emboldening hate crimes, yet he's not labeled far right. Yet here's someone like Warren who's trying to fight for actual real transformational change, and she's falsely labeled far left. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, let's be really clear about what you're talking about. Advocating for healthcare as a human right is not radical. Thank you. Advocating for a fair immigration policy that gives everybody a chance is not radical. Advocating for education that doesn't bankrupt half the population is not radical. What's radical is tossing kids in cages while they die from influenza. What's radical is launching airstrikes 
without congressional approval, without even calling the Speaker of the House to let her know you're going to do it um, because you're on a whim, right? What's radical is spouting racist, white supremacist rhetoric, calling people very fine people on both sides uh, when neo-Nazis are storming a town in Charlottesville. That's radical. Right. And we need to call that the extreme right that it is. And I think you're absolutely correct, right? And we have to remember, it kind of goes back to this, they're profiting off of the messaging. Mm. The mainstream media is cable news, right? It is running off of ratings and viewership. Yep. And what drives ratings and viewership is scandal and chaos. Yep. And so they're really thriving in this environment where Donald Trump has reduced the presidency to reality TV. Yep. It's why they can't ostracize him. It's why they can't turn him off because he's paying the bills. Um, but at the same time, they have to create controversy and chaos when it comes to the Democratic nomination process, right? They yep. have to go after these candidates as being extremist and paint them as socialist so that they can have pundits on who can talk about it for four hours on end. Yeah. Um, so they really have created this reality TV atmosphere where they create the chaos, they create these negative uh, headlines in order to drive viewership. Yeah, you know, one thing I always say is that the danger of corporate media and the way they influence our politics is it's very rare when I turn on CNN or even sadly MSNBC that I hear a pundit who is speaking to the struggles of everyday Americans, right? Mm-hmm. I sometimes feel like, you know, the Washington insiders and the, and the pundit class, they're so disconnected from the pain of everyday Americans. And if we're going to beat Trump, we need to be listening to the struggles of everyday Americans, not to the pundits, right? Because that's, right. That, that's how we're going to beat him with a movement that is people powered, not that is mm-hmm. pundit powered or billionaire powered, right? You know, the last time I checked, begs money can't vote on election day. If they could, right. I think Michael Bloomberg would be a great candidate. Yeah, well, <laughs> Citizens United came close to that. Right. Yeah, but, came close. We're yeah. still suffering from some of that. Yeah, exactly. But, right. you're, but, but you know but what I mean? Like, if we're right. going to put this you're coalition right. together, we've got to have people power. And, right. you know, so let's kind of step back and broaden the discussion here and talk about the 2020 race. Uh, Brandon, which of the Democratic candidates do you think has the most effective plan to end you know, the NRA, the NRA stranglehold on Washington and the corruption on Washington that's really preventing bold action, not just on stopping gun violence, but bold action on climate change and health care reform and truly everything that we want to see done in our country. Yeah, well, for me, the, the choice is really very clear. I, I think that Elizabeth Warren has done the best job of articulating what is actually broken in American politics. Hmm. We have other candidates who are kind of dancing around the edges, putting together these kind of, you know, vague or milk toast plans that may, um, you know, take little bites off the edge of, of these issues that we're talking about. But at the end of the day, all of these major issues that we don't seem to get any traction on right. are dominated by big money in Washington, D.C., right? You think about the trillions of dollars that we were able to approve in a tax cut for the wealthy. Yep. That did not take us 20 years to accomplish. <laughs> Republicans got that done really quick. Yep. But then you think about the, the conversation around gun violence or the conversation around health care, and it's really taken us decades to get any movement, and in some cases, no movement at all on some of these issues, and you've got to ask yourself why. Mm. And the answer is very obvious, right? In terms of healthcare, you've got insurance executives who are profiting tens of millions of dollars off of keeping everybody sick and denying them insurance coverage for their healthcare. And so, of course, they have a vested interest in ensuring that we do not change the healthcare system. So what do they do? They fly to Washington, D.C., they set up shop, across the street from the Capitol and they lobby the heck out of these legislators. They whine, they dine them. And then at the end of the day, they tell them, if you do not fall in line, we will ensure that you lose your job and we'll put someone in place that will do it for us. That is happening on all of these major issues on climate change, on gun violence. And for me, gun violence kind of encapsulates it all, right? Because it's right out in the open. 
And you think about the power that the NRA has had over the past several decades, the power that the gun lobby has had, so much so that they were able to um, you know, get through legislation that made them immune from being held accountable from anything that happens with the use of their firearms. That is an incredible amount of power that is only earned when you set up shop in Washington, D.C. and spend tens and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars to ensure that members of Congress do nothing. So for me, it's very obvious that the candidate who's going to do the best job come January 2021 is the one who effectively articulates how we will root out that big money, how we will evict those lobbyists, how we will stop selling our government to the highest bidder mm. and return that power to the people. That person is Elizabeth Warren. Well said. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, the other thing about Elizabeth Warren that I think is important for people to understand, and the reason I actually endorsed her so early, is that I saw early on that she was the one Democrat who's able to draw support from kind of both wings of our party, if that makes sense. When you look at the mm -hmm. polling, she has support from progressives, people that supported Bernie in 2016, but then she has an equal amount of support from more moderates, you know, people that voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I think yeah. that so often, you know, people say, you know, vote blue no matter who. And of course, come the general election, I am going to get behind whoever wins the primary. But yep. we have to be real about the real divisions in our party and about if we don't fix those real divisions, they will carry on into the general election. And so That's when right. I came time to endorse a candidate, when I looked at it, that Elizabeth Warren was progressive and bold, but she was still practical. And she still used common sense to, to explain to the American people why we need to take action on gun violence, why we need to change our broken healthcare system, why we need an economy that works for everyone. And that she's able to kind of communicate progressive policies in a way that make a lot of sense. And then I saw, okay, so we got Biden and, 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 and Bernie, and then you essentially Warren is kind of that sweet spot in between Biden and Bernie. And if we're mm -hmm. going to have anyone that's going to unite our party, we have to be real, right? And understand that we need yep. someone who's speaking to both camps, the progressives and the moderates. Well, I think, you know, what I think really resonates for me, and I, and I was kind of an early um, adopter too. I was an early endorser. Um, what resonated to me was in the 2016 election, I loved what Bernie had to say about progressive politics, right? I loved how he was pushing the conversation around health care. I loved how he was talking about climate change. Those are things that really resonated for me. But what was missing mm. and what was missing for me really early in the 2020 election cycle was, okay, so how do we do that, mm. right? These ideas are fantastic, and I'd love to see them come to fruition, but how, right? We can't just pretend that on day one, the president, whoever he or she is, is going to appoint themselves monarch of the country uh, or pass everything through executive action, right? Yeah, no, he can't. Uh, that is, he's got to work, gotta work with, the, with the legislative branch. And right, he, he exactly. didn't give a pathway as to how to get all of those proposals done. Yeah. That, exactly. that was my big so, problem with Bernie. And so that's why when, you know, when her message was really crafted around, I've got a plan for that, yep. that spoke to me. Yep. Because it said, I believe in the same progressive policies. I believe in the same vision for America that Bernie does. I believe in the future that's possible for us, but I'm also going to tell you how we're going to get there, yes. right? In a very pragmatic way, in a way that doesn't pretend that Congress just dropped off the face of the earth on the day I was inaugurated. <laughs> right. um, I think she's done that really effectively. And I think, you know, that's why she appeals to all broadly of the party um, is that, you know, she's got that really bold progressive vision, but she's going to tell you how we're going to get it done. And on top of that, I think she's done a really nice job of instead of only tapping into the fear and anger that, you know, lives in politics today, she's also giving us a really hopeful vision, right? I love when she says, if you weren't saddled by all of the debt, who would you be, right? If mm -hmm. you weren't facing healthcare costs that were bankrupting you, what would you do with your life? What would you buy? What would you invest in? Would you start a business? Um, that is a vision of America that I think people can really get behind when they start to imagine what's truly possible when we get rid of the chaos and division that we have right now and we elect a candidate like Elizabeth Warren who's got bold ideas, a really clear path to get us there. 
imagine what your life could look like in a short amount of time. I think it's a really powerful image for people. Yeah, well said. You know, what's interesting for me is, you know, we've watched Elizabeth Warren with her hopeful messages you're just talking about and her progressive vision for our country. You know, this summer she rose to the almost to the top of the polls. She was just, you know, even beating Biden in some polls. But then because there is a lot of fear in our country and the mainstream media started running attacks against her every day and the billionaire class, you know, rather than pay their fair share and pay that two cent wealth tax, you know, they put people on TV to start, you know, fear mongering and scaring people away from the real change that we desperately need, Um, you know. And so I want to have a little bit of conversation with that because. I think so much of this primary is has been driven by fear, fear of Trump and fear of change. But I think it's causing Democrats to pick a quote unquote safe candidate. But as we learned in 2000, 2004 and 2016, when we pick the safe candidate, we lose. And in 2008, when we went with the hopeful and energetic, energetic candidate, we won. And I'm a firm believer that you always go where the energy is. And right now, the grassroots energy in our party is with the more progressive candidates, right? It's with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Is fear causing people to overthink this? Yeah, it is. And, And you know what I would challenge people is consider what is happening right now. And that is that Donald Trump has very effectively infiltrated the Democratic primary process. Agreed. Right? And the way he's done that is by creating this fear that only the safe choice can beat him, right? That if we take a risk, that if we think bold, we will lose. And because people are so terrified of that possibility, they are willing to, you know, compromise on some of their values, compromise on some of their vision, compromise on the passion. Yep. If it means that we have a better chance of beating Donald Trump. And so I would ask people, I would urge people, do not allow Donald Trump to dictate the Democratic primary process. Do not allow Donald Trump to choose our nominee. Because at the end of the day, just as you said, when we have chosen the safe choice in the past, we've lost. I wanna take people back to 2004. Because something really interesting happened in 2004, and I think it it paints a really interesting parallel. In 2004, we faced a really similar situation, right, where we had a progressive leading in the race uh, in Howard Dean. He was absolutely blasted by the media, Mm. um, and we ended up choosing the safe choice in John Kerry. And what happened? We played it safe. We felt comfortable. We yep. thought George W. Bush is unpopular. Uh, this is going to go exactly the way we want it to. And instead, the Republican Party went to the far right. They weaponized marriage equality and they used it to crush John Kerry. We waded into an election, wielding a knife, and they were holding an AR 15. Yep. Right. And that's the situation that we're facing right now. Donald Trump is going to do everything in his power to stay in the Oval Office. That means going to Ukraine and asking them to investigate his opponents. It means doing whatever he needs to do, weaponizing whatever he needs to weaponize in this country to stir up hatred to make sure his base turns out. If we elect or if we nominate someone on the Democratic side that puts the electorate to sleep, that keeps people at home in November of this year, we will lose to Donald Trump. I can assure you of that. We have to think bigger. We have to fight harder than that. And we have to remember what you know spurred us to the polls in 2008. What really ushered in hope and change was that we, we took a risk. Yep. We thought bolder than the safe choice. We, we took a chance on someone that everybody said wasn't electable. And what happened is that people turned out in record numbers and we took back the White House. Yeah, well said. You know, the problem with fear is that when people make their decisions based on fear, you know, you're you're not necessarily making the best decision. You know, fear, it, it can cloud our judgment. And, you know, one of the things I would say is, you know, think about someone like Donald Trump and look at how he campaigned in 2016. He campaigned on big ideas. They weren't ideas mm-hmm. that we supported, but they were big ideas for his base, right? 
build a wall. You know, that worked to motivate his base to get out to the polls and vote. And so I just That's think right. there's this naivete on our part where bringing small ideas isn't going to beat a, a, a crazy narcissist egomaniac like Donald Trump. Settling yeah. for status quo politics isn't going to beat, you know, a, 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 a big egomaniac like Donald Trump. Pl playing it safe isn't going to beat Donald Trump. We have to be bold. We have to be big, right? We have to, you know, there's this stupid idea, I don't know where it came from, that more from the center wing of our party, that we have to compromise our values to win. And I would say it's actually the exact opposite. We have to fight for our progressive values to win. Because if we're not going to fight for our values, how are we going to make the American people believe in them? Because I'll mm -hmm. tell you, the GOP is fighting for their values. They're shoving their right-wing extreme values down our throat. So much so that we've got children in cages and a woman's right to choose. And, you know, Roe v. Wade might get overturned. They're fighting for their beliefs. I would challenge all Democrats. We have to fight for our beliefs because our beliefs and our policies are rooted in compassion. While theirs are rooted in fear and divisiveness and, and policies that lift up the rich, progressive policies are rooted in compassion and rooted in getting rid of gun violence and rooted in cleaning up our planet and rooted in lifting up everyday Americans. So why are we so afraid to be who we are? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, again, there, there is this misconception inside the party right now. And it's frustrating to me that our only goal in 2020 is to convince a handful of never Trump moderate Republicans in the Midwest to vote for a Democratic candidate. And therefore, we must elect Joe Biden because he's the only person that can win those votes. In reality, Donald Trump's base is absolutely going to turn out in 2020. They will be at the polls. They will be wrapped around the building. They will show up for Donald Trump. The question is, will the Democratic base show up for whoever we nominate. And I simply do not believe, and, and history bears this out, that if we nominate a safe choice, if we nominate someone who puts half the country to sleep, that we will win in 2020. What is gonna get people out, what's gonna get them into the streets is somebody who understands what it's like, understands what the future could hold, understands what's at stake for people in the democratic base. The reason there is such fear on the progressive side of the aisle is because many of the people who have been targeted by this administration live in the Democratic base, right? Mm -hmm. It's people of color. It's, um, oh, it's folks with undocumented families. It's LGBTQ people. Right. Those are the people who are most under assault by this administration. And so, of course, we're terrified. I'm, a, I'm an LGBTQ person of color. Of course, we are terrified right. at the idea of four more years of Donald Trump. But that should not prevent us from living unashamedly. It should not prevent us from thinking boldly because at the end of the day, the way we get our neighbors and our friends and our communities to turn out on election day is by being bold and unapologetic in the face of this racist misogynist in the White House. Yeah, well said. You know, I think there's, there's also this fear just in general of progressivism, uh, which puzzles me because Progressive presidents, if you just look back at history, gave us Medicare, Social Security, the 40-hour work week, the minimum wage, and even the weekend. What are Americans so afraid of? Their life getting better? <laughs> no, they're, they're, you know, the GOP does a really great job of pumping these talking points into Americans' lives. They, they do a really great job of dividing us along fault lines, of scaring us with, with rhetoric that simply is false. You know, I, I hear a lot of people talking about socialism and Venezuela, and, and I'm, I'm puzzled because I just wonder how many of them know any of the history of Venezuela at all, first of all, um, or even could point to Venezuela on a map. But it's really effective, right? If you see pictures of a city in shambles or tanks rolling down the streets, and you can equate that to progressive policies, you're gonna be afraid of the future. And change is hard, we know that. That's, that's the human condition, that change is hard, change is scary. 
But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right that the best moments in our history have come when we have lived unashamedly in our progressive values, right? I think about after the Great Depression yep. and, you know, what, what we faced, we were at a fork in the road as a country and instead we took a risk, right? We did something really bold and we elected a man who totally transformed the social fabric of this country and gave us many of the things that keep us from falling apart today. Yep. Uh, I watched a, I watched an interview, an old interview with Elizabeth Warren, and she put it really nicely, that the regulations that were put together after the Great Depression on the banking industry stopped these wild swings that caused things like the Great Depression. Yep. And as soon as we started to erode at those regulations, as soon as we started to buy into this trickle down, make as much money as you can, as quickly as you can, economic policy is when things started to fall apart again. That's what took us to the 2008 crash. So yeah. we have an opportunity right now to put our flag in the ground and to say progressive policies have worked for this country in the past. The greatest moments in American history have been brought about when we've been unashamed about our values when we have been proud of who we are as a country, when we have been committed to lifting everyone up instead of just a few people up. Um, and I think in 2020, that is a vision that will resonate with folks in this country. I really hope that we can put aside fear of progressivism, fear of change, fear of losing to Donald Trump for just a moment and imagine what our country could look like in 2021 if we are proud and unashamed in our values. Yeah, well said. You know, one other thing just to kind of hit the nail on the head of this this great conversation we're having about fear and, and you know, getting out of fear and, and voting for hope is, you know, the corporate media's coverage of this primary has perpetuated a lot of the fear mongering around the progressive mm -hmm. candidates, you know, and I, I hate to use the word, but it's true. Like th there's this fairy tale that somehow Democrats are going to beat Donald Trump by pandering to Republican voters Mm -hmm. who are going to vote for Trump anyway, rather than energizing our own base, younger voters, who I must say, we're going to make up 40% of the 2020 electorate, millennials and Generation Z voters, and we're overwhelmingly progressive. And yep. then we also not even, so we have our own base we need to energize, younger voters, and the 100 million Americans who sat out in 2016. Like, mm -hmm. in what world... Should we be running a candidate who's trying to pander to more conservative voters that Trump is doing his best to energize than running a candidate who's going to energize our voters and going to energize independents and energize the people who sat out in 2016 and energize young people? Like, why is yeah. it so clear? But why does the corporate yeah. media perpetuate the other narrative? Well, I think it's almost criminal on their part, right? But it takes me back to that reality TV show politics that they're perpetuating right now. And, and so what they're doing is really very clear. They're creating a character that they can put on television after every single Democratic debate that's interesting to watch, that they can go back to the well. You always see them in these small towns in, in Midwestern America asking folks who voted for Obama, then voted for Trump, who do you think is, is the right one? Um, but we don't see faces of black and brown folks in urban America and asking them who is energizing you to turn out to vote. What are the top line issues for you? Right. And the reason I say that it's criminal is because if you look at the 2018 midterms, right, that was the last chance we had an opportunity to really have this dialogue as a country. Look at what was driving the conversation. First of all, the things that people showed up for were promises to fix and maintain and sustain health care for people in this country promises to end gun violence in this country, promises to tackle climate change. Those were the things that drove people to the polls in 2018. And who were the people that were driving really a historic uh, taking of the House by Democrats? It was women of color. Yep. It was young people who turned out, you know, at Texas, youth voter turnout was up, I think, 400 percent yep. over 2016. Young people, people of color, women of color specifically, those are the folks who were driving the 2018 midterm elections. Those are the folks that will drive the 2020 election unless we choose a candidate that is very safe, 
that is middle of the road and that is talking only to a handful of right-leaning voters who may be waffling on their support of Trump, that is a guarantee that young people, that people of color will end up staying home because they won't feel their voices are represented on the national stage. So I do think it's a bit criminal that the media is sacrificing the voices of everyday Americans and the issues that are impacting them in order to perpetuate this caricature of you know, the average American voter that plays well on TV at 8 p.m. Yeah, well, you know, and the other thing is like, Republicans never moderate their message to appeal to Democrats. So why are centrist Democrats always so quick to moderate their message to appeal to Republicans? And I think if you look at that dynamic, that the Republicans are always energizing their base and, you know, build a wall. Trump is turning out his voters. Then we have our candidates who are trying to energize and turn out the center. We've got an entire swath of voters, the entire left, who are not even being energized and being, you know, courted in politics, right? And so it's yeah, just, yeah. it's so ridiculous to me. And, but I think it speaks to the bigger problem that because our party continues to stay in the center and, and the Republicans continue to move further and further to the right, look, every time the Republicans move more to the right and then Democrats move more to the center, guess what? The center shifts more right when the Republicans move more right. Right. Yeah. And so what we've had is for the last and this isn't just happening in this decade, Brandon, this has been happening for the last four decades that mm -hmm. the Republican has the Republican Party has moved further and further right. And every time we just go to the center, go to the center and the center keeps going a little more right. Well, guess what? America has moved so far to the right that we're tipping into the Atlantic Ocean and we need to move left to recenter our country. We need to move left to lift up working people. We need to move left to save our planet from the climate crisis. We need to move left to get the children out of cages at the border. We need to move left to save a woman's right to choose over her own body, right? Yeah. Moving left is, is, is moving to a better America. It's not this bad thing that gets demonized over and over again on cable television. You know, I, I want to end our our podcast today because on, on another kind of topic that's related because one of the things that I've seen in this primary is the disingenuous labeling of Elizabeth Warren is quote unquote divisive right and, and this is the same attack that is always used when someone has the courage to rise up against our corrupt system and fight for the bold transformational change that's desperately needed it's important yeah. to point out that throughout history, MLK, JFK, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, Harvey Milk, and even Barack Obama, at one time were all labeled divisive, right? Mm -hmm. Warren is fighting for a more equitable America, where children aren't in cages, where healthcare is a human right, where workers earn a living wage, where the, where the racial wealth gap is a thing of the past, and where the rich pay their fair share. That, that's not divisive. That's how we heal America, right? Yeah, no, it's not divisive. And, and I think, you know, again, we have to ask people what they truly believe. Ask the American people what they believe. If you look at the fundraising totals for Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren for this entire year, it's yep. almost $200 million that yep. they have raised. Yep from grassroots donors. These are not closed door fundraisers with billionaires. Yep. These are not, you know, pandering to insider lobbyists, CEOs, executives. These are everyday people who are pitching in $5, $10, $20 when they can because they really believe in the vision of an America that works better for every single person. That is not divisive. Yep. If the American people are unhappy, with the system that we have now. If American people are sick and tired of working three jobs just to put food on the table while Jeff Bezos owns a $42 million clock and his company isn't paying any federal income tax. <laughs> if the American people are sick of facing bankruptcy, if they break a leg, if the American people are tired of being drowned in student loan debt, and are you know unwilling to raise their children in a world that may not exist in 50 to 60 years because of climate change, then it is not divisive 
for our candidates to take that message to the national stage. Mm. In fact, it is actually quite unifying. The only thing divisive about the kind of progressive change that Elizabeth Warren and folks like Bernie Sanders are talking about, the only thing divisive about that is that it strips power from those who have spent decades ripping it from the American people. Those top four or 500 families who possess a massive amount of wealth, more wealth than over half of the world, Yep. it's only divisive for them. Yep. And I think, you know, Elizabeth says this really well in her stump speech, people aren't going to give up power easily. That's not the way the system works. If you have worked really hard for several generations to strip power from regular people to amass great amounts of wealth so that you can do whatever you want, buy whatever you want, go wherever you want at any time, you are not giving up that power easily. You own media outlets. You can control messaging. You can put out ads, right? And so, of course, the message is going to be that what those progressive champions are doing is divisive. But at the end of the day, $200 million from grassroots donors to the progressive candidates this year, a massive grassroots movement from the left saying enough is enough. Yep. There is no reason that over the last couple of decades, CEO salaries have gone up over 900% while the average worker's wage has gone up barely 12%. Yep. That is egregious. It's unfair. And there is nothing divisive about calling it corruption, plain and simple. Yep. No, well said. And, you know, I'll just add uh, piggyback on what you're saying. Uh, I think the total, I think it's just under 200 million. I added it up yesterday. I think that Warren and, and Sanders have raised like $189 million. And what's mm-hmm. so fascinating about that number is that it's more than Trump has raised. Trump has yep. only raised $145 million in, the, in 2019. So you've got That's the right. two progressive champions have outraised Donald Trump and they've outraised Joe Biden and, and, and Pete Buttigieg by a long measure. I think that you know Pete Buttigieg has raised just about $75 million and, and Biden has raised $60 million. Uh, so if I'm still good at math, that's $135 million collectively. So, right. so Bernie and, and Warren have outraised the more moderate candidates by $50 million. And they've mm-hmm. done that without taking money from billionaires and Wall Street. They've done it with grassroots donations. So I would just challenge any of our listeners to just think about that for a second. That the message that's being sent overwhelmingly is that we want bold change, right? When the two progressive candidates have outraised the two moderate candidates who are taking big money donors and having private fundraisers and wine caves, <laughs> that means people want change. So, yeah. so go where the energy in the party is because that change will carry on into the general. We'll, we'll way outraise Donald Trump with, with this grassroots funding. And the last thing I'll just say is this. We're going to beat Donald Trump in, in, in the general election by making the best contrast against him. And Donald Trump and the Republican Party, they are the party of Wall Street and wealthy CEOs. So we need to be the party of Main Street and everyday Americans. And if that's how you make the best contrast against Donald Trump, and I know a lot of people don't like to hear it, but over the last two decades, the Republican Party is so bad and so egregious that, and moves so far to the right that there's a part of our party in the center who've just said, okay, well, since the Republicans are so bad, we're just going to sit and point the finger at them, and we're going to settle for status quo politics in our own party. We're going to settle for just little nibbles and pieces. You know, We believe in climate change. We believe that climate change is real. But we're still going to take money from the fossil fuel industry and we're not going to put out a bold climate change plan. And we're definitely not going to implement a bold climate change plan because that means the people that are donating to us, right, are going to be upset with us. You know, that's the kind of politics we've seen in our own party. And in 2020, we have a chance to not only beat Donald Trump, we have a chance to redefine the Democratic Party as the progressive party that we once were under FDR, right? when we were the party of Main Street and we were the party of everyday Americans. That's what Elizabeth Warren can do for the Democratic Party. 
And I think that is what is going to get us the big coalition, the Obama-type coalition that we need to beat Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think, you know, I think you said it really well, that we have an opportunity right now. Donald Trump, for better or worse, has laid bare where politics is today, right? He's laid bare some of the grotesque injustices that we're facing right now. He's laid bare the kind of immigration policies that are possible that will separate children from their parents. He's laid bare the kind of transphobia that's running rampant that you know, would allow us to take actions against trans people in the military, trans people in homeless shelters. Donald Trump has showed us the ugliest that America can be. And I have no doubt that if he were elected for another four years, he could get even uglier than he is now. And the only way that we truly energize the American people to rally around a candidate, to take back the White House, to take our country back from this runaway train is by sharing with them the possibility of a different America, right? An America where everyone's voice matters, an America where children belong in schools not cages. In America where active shooter drills don't exist anymore, you can go to church, you can go to a club, you can go to a movie theater without fearing for your life. In America where billionaires and Wall Street executives do not hold more political power than the everyday American people, where people can get a dignified wage, where they can get the health care they deserve without fearing bankruptcy the next day, where they're not crippled with student loan debt, while the folks at the top of the loan organizations are you know, running away to Ibiza for the weekend. That's an America that's truly possible if we are unashamed, if we are unafraid, and if we rally behind a progressive candidate. I think that's the only way we win in 2020, and I think it's the way we begin to heal and repair the damage that Donald Trump has done in 2021. Yeah, well said. You know, I'll, It reminds me, it's, it's not enough to just be anti-Trump right? We have to give an an America and fight for a vision in America that's better than Donald Trump, right? It's all, it's that difference between, you know, we, we have to give people something to vote for, not just give them something to vote against. And I really think that's the difference between a Joe Biden and an Elizabeth Warren. I think Joe Biden would be a fine candidate. I think he could maybe squeak out a win, but I think it will be so close like it was in 2016 with, with, you know, Trump and Hillary that I think Warren is going to energize the younger voters we need. She's going to energize our base. She's going to energize independents. She's going to energize people who stayed home in 2016 because they thought, well, both parties are bad and the political establishment on both sides won't help me. That's what you get with an Elizabeth Warren, someone that can, can unify our party, but then energize America with a vision for America that's far better than Donald Trump's vision. Yep. Yep. Totally agree with you. Well, thank you so much, Brandon. Uh, how can people follow you on uh, Twitter? Yeah, so you can follow me at B Joe Wolf. It's B J O E W O L F. Uh, please give me a follow. I'm also on Instagram, but I'm terrible at that. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, please do. Let's engage in more conversation around politics, around progressive policy. Um, I think that's how we win. Uh, as we head into the primary season, we continue to have this kind of conversation. We continue to encourage each other, even while the CNNs and, and Fox News and MSNBCs of the world might beat us down. Uh, it's how we continue to push this grassroots movement forward. So let's connect, let's engage, and let's win in 2020. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, Brandon, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, you made me think and you challenged me to think, and uh, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, continuing uh, this journey with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. You bet. Thanks, Brandon. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks, you too. Bye. All right. That was a great conversation. Yeah. Great podcast this week. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Uh, before we close out the show, you know what we got to do. It's that time. It's that time. To talk about New Year, New Wrinkles. No. New no. Ye- new Year, New Face. New Year, New Face. Well, yes. Because we're going to get rid of those wrinkles. The, the, the Stephanie Miller of the Stephanie Miller <laughs> Sexy Liberal Podcast Network has a new face, but... We can tell you how to get it for cheaper. Yes, with Plexiderm. Yes. It is a rapid reduction reduction serum uh, that you put. You put a little bit of it under your eyes. Yep. Takes away the bags within five minutes. Which is what I need. Also smooths up those under eye wrinkles and yeah. those wrinkles on the side. Yeah. Some people call them crow's feet. Well, sure. 
Yeah, we, we're going to make those crow's feet fly away. Yes, and yes. we're grateful because Plexiderm is one of the sponsors of the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. They've been a sponsor since the beginning, and we're really appreciative. The so, only reason you get to enjoy the show. Yeah, exactly. So give them some love, wouldn't you? Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code SEXYLIBERAL for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, $50 off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling one 800 685 1292 and mentioning code sexy liberal plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee visit triplexiderm.com today and use code sexy liberal at checkout that's triplexiderm.com code sexy liberal and also if you want to support my activism and some of the other grassroots stuff i do you can go to patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash proud resistor and you can donate two dollars a month to help my grassroots activism efforts thank you so much and catch us all catch us next week with an all-new episode of amped up with proud resistor hey this is jody hamilton host of the podcast from the bunker if you enjoyed this episode you'll love my show where every week sean barton david shockett and i discuss politics sports pop culture that show on hbo that i don't watch Find it at sexyliberal.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere else you get your podcasts.